The Word of God, the Holy Bible, is a treasure and a gift beyond compare. Every passage of it points to a marvelous truth that God's love for man impelled him to step out of eternity and unite with his creation in order to redeem him from sin. Jesus Christ is both the author and subject of this precious word. Join us at the Superior Word each week as we search out this wonderful gift in search of Christ Jesus. Psalm 21, to the chief musician, a psalm of David. The king shall have joy in your strength, O Lord, and in your salvation. How greatly shall he rejoice. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. Selah. For you meet him with the blessings of goodness. You set a crown of pure gold upon his head. He asked me life from you, and you gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great in your salvation. Honor and majesty you have placed upon him. You have made him most blessed forever. You have made him exceedingly glad with your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord, and through the mercy of the Most High he shall not be moved. Your hand will find all your enemies. Your right hand will find those who hate you. You shall make them as a fiery oven in the time of your anger. The Lord shall swallow them up in his wrath, and the fire shall devour them. Their offspring you shall destroy from the earth, and their descendants from among the sons of men. For they intended evil against you. They devised a plot which they are not able to perform. Therefore, you will make them turn their back. You will make ready your arrows on your string toward their faces. Be exalted, O Lord, in your own strength. We will sing and praise your power. Okay, we're in Numbers 30 today. We're going to do all 16 verses, Numbers 31 through 16. It's entitled, He Shall Bear Her Guilt. And I have to tell you that this is a really marvelous sermon. I know that you'll listen to it, and a lot of it will go over your head, and uh, you'll forget it, and by next week you won't remember most of it unless you watch it a couple times. And I don't think I've ever asked people to do that, but this is really an impressive passage. And if you listen to it and think about it and listen to it a couple times, you are going to be astonished at what the Lord has tucked away in these very obscure verses. So we'll go ahead and read them right now. Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Or if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement while in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears her vow and the agreement by which she has bound herself and her father holds his peace, Then all her vows shall stand, and every agreement with which she has bound herself shall stand. But if her father overrules her on the day that he hears, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will release her, because her father overruled her. If indeed she takes a husband while bound by vows or by a rash utterance from her lips by which she has bound herself, and her husband hears it, and makes no response to her on the day that he hears, then her vows shall stand, and her agreements by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband overrules her on the day that he hears it, he shall make void her vow which she took, and what she uttered with her lips by which she bound herself, and the Lord will release her. 
Also, any vow of a widow or a divorced woman by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. If she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by an agreement with an oath, and her husband heard it and made no response to her and did not overrule her, then all her vows shall stand, and every agreement by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband truly made them void on the day he heard them, then whatever proceeded from her lips concerning her vows or concealing the agreement binding her, it shall not stand. Her husband has made them void, and the Lord will release her. Every vow and every binding oath to afflict her soul, her husband may confirm it, or her husband may make it void. Now, if her husband makes no response whatever to her from day to day, then he confirms all her vows or all the agreements that bind her. He confirms them because he made no response to her on the day that he heard them. But if he does make them void after he has heard them, then he shall bear her guilt. These are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses between a man and his wife and between a father and his daughter in her youth, in her father's house. Isn't that a bizarre set of verses? Well, you will, I assure you. Long before we got to this chapter, my friend Sergio emailed me with a thought about what is going on here in Numbers chapter 30. That was on August 15th, 2018. I had never taken the time to really look over the verses and thought, well, isn't that the cat's meow? Now, I've read these verses four million times, but I just never really gave them any study. And so I didn't really give it any thought. I saved his thought under my sermon notes, which are for future sermons, and eventually on 29 July of this year, I got to sit down and type an evaluation of today's passage. Until then, I wasn't going to commit one way or another to his thoughts. We have to go where the Lord leads. Advanced guessing leads to presuppositions, and presuppositions more often than not lead to faulty doctrine. But within the first five or six hours of sermon typing, it was pretty evident that his speculation was spot on. I would like to say, oh yes, I would have figured that out, but I'd better not. Instead, thanks, Sergio. Great insight. Our text verse comes from Matthew chapter 5. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oath to the Lord but I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king, nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no, for whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Jesus' words here do not negate the requirements of the law, which are partially revealed in our verses today. Rather, they uphold them and further refine what the Lord expects. This is so certain that James substantially repeats Jesus' words in his epistles. He says from James 5, But above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no no, lest you fall into judgment. Our words reflect what is on our mind. They reflect what we hold sacred, and they reflect the state of our heart all at the same time. Sometimes our minds and our hearts get out of whack, and we make rash statements that we might later regret. The best option is to listen a lot, 
think carefully, and speak little. If we get those out of order, or if we don't apply one or any of these, we are sure to fall into error, and with error comes judgment. Another thing we will be judged on is how we treated God's Word. Normally, the pulpit commentary does a pretty sweet job of evaluating Scripture, but whoever was assigned the latter portion of Numbers has shown a rather liberal streak. Here are his comments on verse 1. The statement peculiar to this passage, that these instructions were issued to the heads of the tribes itself, serves to differentiate it from all the rest of the statutes given by Moses, and suggests that this chapter was inserted either by some other hand or from a different source. That really riles me up. The guy who made this commentary must have been on the board at Cambridge. Let's just make stuff up, tear the Bible apart, and call ourselves Bible scholars. We'll explain what this person could not figure out, and we'll continue to hold to the truth that this word is not a hodgepodge from various sources, nor is it a word which has arbitrary inserts in it. Rather, it is a marvelous, intricate, and divinely inspired source of marvel and wonder. Great things are to be found in his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again, and may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. I've got a couple of thoughts for you today. The first is vows and binding agreements. It's verses 1 through 16. Verse 1, then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel. Here is something rather unusual. Quite often, the Lord's words through Moses will be to all of the children of Israel, or to the whole congregation, or something similar. Here, in a unique occurrence, Moses is said to speak to the Rashe Hamatot, or heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel. This unusual address is certainly given based on the nature of what will be explained later in this chapter. What is to be presented is similar to that of the redemption or disposition of things dedicated or devoted to the Lord, which was recorded in Leviticus chapter 27. However, this goes beyond that to the act of making the vow in the first place. And who has the authority to override such a vow? And who is obligated to such a vow without the chance of being released from it? Addressing this to the heads of the tribes shows that it is something which enters into the sphere of family life itself. The heads of the tribes speak for those under them, and they are to be aware of the commands and always be ready to convey what is laid out here to all under them. What is presented here is actually followed closely by Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Moses now begins his words to these heads of the tribes. Verse 1 continues, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. Zehadabar asher tziva Yehovah. This the word which has commanded Yehovah. Moses' words are not merely cultural precepts which Moses is conveying from his own perspective, but they are the word of the Lord as commanded by him. The reason for what will be presented being placed here is probably twofold. First, the issue of a female receiving her father's inheritance was resolved in Numbers chapter 27, when the five daughters of Zelophehad came forward concerning their father's inheritance. Secondly, immediately after that came the required offerings of Israel through the calendar year, the daily, Sabbath, monthly, and annual offerings. At the end of those two chapters, it said this, 
These you shall present to the Lord at your appointed feasts, besides your vowed offerings and your free will offerings, as your burnt offerings and your grain offerings, as your drink offerings and your peace offerings. There are required offerings and there are vowed offerings. This section now deals with vows. And so it must be considered who has the responsibility in determining if the vow stands or not. The final verse of chapter 29 said, So Moses told the children of Israel everything, just as the Lord commanded Moses. In the Hebrew Bible, that verse actually begins chapter 30. The connection is obvious. A matter concerning the rights of women was presented, the matter of presenting vows has been raised, and so the matter of the binding nature of the vow must be addressed. It may even be that the heads of the tribes wanted to know what to do if this situation arose. Now that women were explicitly allowed to be inheritors, how would the matters of vows within a family be resolved? Whatever precipitated it, Moses begins with verse 2, if a man. The first consideration is the sex and age of the one being spoken of here. First, it is a male. The same matters concerning females will be addressed later. Secondly, this is speaking of a man, not a child too young to be involved in what will be presented. Verse 2 going on makes a vow to the Lord. There are now two separate things which are to be addressed. The first is Ishki Yador Neder Le Yehovah, or man if vowing a vow to Yehovah. A vow to the Lord consists of a promise to give something to him. Such an offering was usually made during times of danger or special needs. This is exactly what Jephthah is said to have done in Judges 11 verse 30. There he vowed to make a burnt offering of whatever first came out of the doors of his house if the Lord would give him victory in battle. There it says, Ve'yidar yiftach neder, and vowed Jephthah a vow. Unfortunately for him, what first came out of his doors was not a chicken or a goat. Rather, it was his own daughter. He had vowed, and the Bible says he fulfilled his vow to the Lord. Philo says that such a rash vow was never to be kept, because he who commits an unjust action because of his vow adds one crime to another. The Bible does not state this, nor does it appear to agree with this, especially in the case of Jephthah. One must consider which is of more import, refusing to fulfill a bad vow, which was made to the Lord, or following through with a bad vow because it was, in fact, made to the Lord. Guilt is incurred either way, but which is the more important to accomplish? For the man, the Lord expects the vow to be fulfilled. Verse 2 continues, or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement. The second matter is, he shavah shavuah lesor isar al nafshol, or swears oath to bind a binding on his soul. In this is a new word, isar. It is a noun coming from the common verb also in this verse, asar, which means to tie, bind, or even imprison. Thus, this is a bond or a binding obligation. When one makes a vow, he binds himself to it. It is as if he is imprisoned by the obligation and he cannot get himself free from it from that point on. Amazingly, this word will be used 11 times in Scripture, but all 11 are right here in chapter 30 of Numbers. The word's root is found 70 times, such as the imprisonment of Joseph while he was in Egypt, and it was found in the wonderful words of release described by Isaiah 
in Isaiah 61, we read this. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound. This would be an oath or an agreement which would be placed upon oneself, or it would be between a person and another person, or even an oath to God, which is found in Ecclesiastes 8 verse 2. Such an oath is made in the presence of the Lord, and it is binding. It is as if the Lord is a party to the matter, either directly or indirectly. In such a case, verse 2 continues, He shall not break his word. Lo yachel de baro, no shall he profane his word. John Lang notes that the form of the verb seems to imply the desecration of the subject itself, not the mere treating it in a profane way. The broken word is desecrated. This can be seen in such an oath as is recorded in Nehemiah chapter 10, where the word Shavuah, or oath, is used. The exiles had returned to Israel, and they made a covenant before the Lord concerning their intentions to be faithful to him. There it says this, These joined with their brethren, their nobles, and entered into a curse and an oath, that word there, to walk in God's law, which was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his ordinances and his statutes. If the people broke this oath, they would desecrate themselves. This is why when this word is used by the Lord in Scripture, we can be absolutely assured that the oath will come to pass. A perfect example of this is the Lord's Shavuah, or oath, concerning the land of Israel. In Psalm 105, he says this, He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. He remembers his covenant forever, the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham, and his oath, that word there to Isaac, and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel as an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. If the Lord was not to keep that oath, he would be desecrating himself. That's the point there. This oath is referred to in Jeremiah 11 verse 5. The oath is made, but there are conditions upon it. The land is the Lord's. He has given it to Israel. When they are obedient, they may dwell in it. When they are not, they may not. But the oath stands. So it is to be with the people. Verse 2 continues, he shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. When the vow or oath is made, the Lord says that it shall be accomplished. The word itself is to be considered authoritative and binding. In our text verse, we saw that Jesus took this one step further. He told the people that they were to have every word that came from their mouths be as sure and as fixed as this law. When someone says yes, it is to be followed through with. No word which issues from the mouth is to be allowed to fail. And so I'll ask you right now, have you all made oaths? Have you made a loan at a bank and you owe the bank? That is an oath. Have you said something to somebody, I will do this, and you say yes? Then you better do it because the Lord expects this. This is our standard. James confirms this. This isn't just under the law of Jesus speaking to Israel. James said it in his epistle, the 59th book of the Bible. Go and look at it. I read it to you earlier. Think on this. If you have said you are going to do something, you are obligated to do it. Verse 3, or if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement, 
This now turns from the male who is obligated and who must perform to the woman. Here, she makes a vow to the Lord. It could be a Nazarite vow, as described in number six, for example. In this, she would be binding herself to the vow according to the word spoken. However, there is now a caveat which is presented. Verse three continues, while in her father's house in her youth. This is a female under the authority of her father and at an age where she is not yet considered in a position to speak for herself. The responsibility for her vow belongs to him. Verse five, and her father hears her vow and the agreement by which she has bound herself and her father holds his peace, then all her vows shall stand and every agreement with which she has bound herself shall stand. The father is the head of the house in this situation. She is dependent on him, and he is responsible for the conduct of the house, the operation of the house, the finances of the house, and so on. When such a female under his authority makes a vow, any of these could be affected because she is dependent on him. If he hears such a vow which would bind her, even if it could affect him, and he says nothing about the matter, then what she has vowed or has agreed to will stand. His silence is its own voice, and it bears its own binding authority. In essence, the father has a legal right to authority in such matters. When he does not exercise that right by negating the vow, he is granted her an acquired right which now has legal standing. She has become legally obligated to what has been vowed, but importantly, so has he. What is implied is that this is speaking of the father's knowledge. This does not apply to a vow which was spoken and of which he is unaware. At the time he becomes aware of it, and if he says nothing, it is then binding. On the other hand, verse 5, but if her father overrules her on the day that he hears, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will release her because her father overruled her. Here is a new word, new, kind of surprising, isn't it? A new word being new. It signifies to refuse, forbid, neutralize, and so on. The girl has spoken a vow, and her father hears of it and overrules what she has said. The vow is not considered binding, and it is rescinded. He has exercised his legal right in this matter, and as it says, Ve'yehovah yishlach la, and Yehovah will release her. What is painfully obvious here is that the Lord has set a hierarchy within the house, and he, meaning the Lord, defers to that hierarchy in such matters. This is the same premise as that which Paul refers to in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and he says this same family hierarchy stands within the Christian community. John Lang, a Bible scholar of the 1800s, disappointingly notes this, it is only an emasculated modern liberalism which would reverse this divinely appointed order of nature and constitute woman the mistress, give her control of the household in things of religion. One can see the frustration in John Lang's words at the state of the church as it was already two full centuries ago as it was casting off this God-ordained hierarchy. Today, there is very little left of the biblical propriety of male spiritual authority within the church. Indeed, it is considered improper by much of the church. One thing which seems obvious is to question why only daughters are discussed here. It says nothing of young men who might still be in the house. 
What seems logical is that because young males at some point would become masters of their own house, they would not transfer to the authority of another, whereas a young woman would pass from the authority of her father to a husband. Any vow they made could then affect the state of that future husband. The father would have to consider this in allowing such a vow in a daughter. If she vows and the father says nothing, that vow will remain in full force when she transfers to a husband. However, verse 6, if indeed she takes a husband. Care of translation is important here to understand what is going on. The Hebrew reads, ve'im la'ish, if being she be to a man. This is not speaking of a woman who is married and in her husband's house. That is going to be addressed later. This is speaking of a woman who is still in her father's house, but she is now betrothed to a man. Though still under her father's care, she is, for all intents and purposes, bound to her betrothed. Anything she says which could affect him from that point on is given to him for consideration. This law of betrothal is found in regards to another circumstance in Deuteronomy chapter 22. Here's what it says. If a young woman who is a virgin is betrothed to a husband and a man finds her in the city and lies with her, then you shall bring them both out to the gate of that city and you shall stone them to death with stones. The young woman, because she did not cry out in the city and the man, because he humbled his neighbor's wife, you shall put away the evil from among you. This is the same law which is tenderly considered in Matthew chapter 1, where Joseph was betrothed to Mary, and yet she was found to be with child of the Holy Spirit. It is this state which is next spoken of concerning vows. Verse 6 going on, while bound by her vows or by a rash utterance from her lips by which she bound herself. U nedareha aleha omibta sefateha asher asara al nafsa. The ah at the end is feminine, and that's why it sounds like that. And her vows shall be upon her, or a rash utterance of her lips by which she has bound her soul. The idea is that while in a state of betrothal, she vows or makes a rash utterance by which she has become bound. Here is a new and rare word, mibta, or rash utterance. It will be seen only here and in verse 8. It is from the word bata, meaning to speak rashly or thoughtlessly. She has babbled out something rash. However, she is duly considered under the authority of this man due to the betrothal. Therefore, he has the legal rights over her. Verse 7, and her husband hears it and makes no response to her on the day that he hears. Then her vows shall stand and her agreements by which she bound herself shall stand. The betrothed husband hears what has been said and says nothing when he hears about it. In this, and because he has the legal right and conceded it to her, what she says now becomes legally binding. It cannot be reversed, and she must follow through with the vow. After their marriage is consummated, he cannot change it. Verse 8, but if her husband overrules her on the day that he hears it, he shall make void her vow which she took and what she uttered with her lips, by which she bound herself, and the Lord will release her. As was the case with the father, so is the case with the betrothed husband. The authority over her has transferred to him, and he may override the vow, and the Lord will release her. Again, and for the second and last time in Scripture, the word mibta, or rash utterance, is used. She babbled out something unwise, and she is overridden. 
What is seen here? And that which will continue to be seen is that the one designated to be the head of the house is given the discretion to determine the propriety of those things which fall under his authority. He could accept them or reject them. But once accepted through verbal acknowledgement or through silence, the matters stood and were to be carried through to their fulfillment. Verse 9, also, any vow of a widow or a divorced woman by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. Verse 16 will sum up the entire passage, noting the examples where a woman's vow can be accepted or overturned by whatever authority she was under. These words here still fall under that premise. What is said is in the perfect tense. She has bound herself. It is, like verse 1, a statement of certainty. When a woman who is widowed or divorced has made any type of vow, it is binding upon her and it shall stand. This would include a woman who was divorced or widowed who would then return to her father's house. That is noted elsewhere, such as in Leviticus 22, verse 13. Because she was freed from her father's authority to a husband, and because she was freed from her husband's authority through death or divorce, any vow she has made, even if in her father's house, remains binding. This includes if it was made while under her husband. It still stands even if her husband dies or he divorces her. This is seen in the next words. Verse 10, if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by an agreement with an oath, the words are in the perfect tense, and if in house of her husband, she vowed. This then is explaining the previous verse. Divorce or widowhood does not negate a vow she has made. The husband had the same authority over the woman as the father had over her. If a woman made a vow or bound herself by an agreement with an oath, verse 11, and her husband heard it and made no response to her and did not overrule her, then all her vows shall stand and every agreement by which she bound herself shall stand. The oath was made while the marriage was in effect. The husband heard and he did not overrule what she uttered. The verbs are in the perfect tense. These things happened. If so, the vows stand, and every agreement by which she bound herself is binding. As it says, it shall stand. What occurred in the past is fixed and firm into the future. The idea here could be something vowed for any reason at all. To give a simple example, a woman may have tired of her husband and thought, I know how to get away from him for a while. And so she says, dear husband, I vow to go to church every Thursday for Bible class and every Sunday to listen to Charlie's prophecy update and sermon. <laughs> Unless I'm sick or have some other reason that absolutely keeps me from going, I vow to do this. The husband, thoroughly relieved to get some peace on Thursday and Sunday and wishing Charlie had more classes throughout the week, simply says nothing. Her vow would stand. It has become the law for her. However, when her husband dies or divorces her, she might think, I'm really tired of going to church. There's so much more I can get done now that I have the house all to myself. And Charlie, isn't that interesting? It is tough bananas for her. She has made the vow, and despite her new situation, the vow stands. Despite this, verse 12, but if her husband truly made them void on the day he heard them, then whatever proceeded from her lips concerning her vows or concerning the agreement binding on her, it shall not stand. Her husband has made them void, and the Lord will release her. Ve'im haper yeper 
Utam Isha, and if annulling, he annuls them, her husband. A different word is used then of the father overruling the daughter in verse 5. Here it is a word which means to break, as in a covenant, or to annul it. In this case, it is to annul what is said. If he takes this action, then whatever she said would not stand. As it says, then a third time using the same word, he has annulled them. In this annulment of her words, the Lord will release her from them, demonstrating that he has allowed the husband authority over the wife's words. The hierarchy which the Lord deems as correct and proper is maintained. She may still wisely choose to come to Bible classes and weekly sermons, but she is under no obligation to do so, both during the life of her husband and afterwards. Verse 13, every vow and every binding oath to afflict her soul, her husband may confirm it or her husband may make it void. Here again, both types of interactions are referred to which are described in this chapter, the vow and the binding oath. Whatever she utters, in either case, her husband may confirm it, meaning cause it to stand, or he may parar, or annul it. The word parar, now used again, is the source of the word par, or bull, which is described numerous times as being used in the sacrifices to the Lord. In type, that bull consistently looked forward to Jesus Christ, who would defeat the devil, making void or annulling his power over man. Verse 14, now if her husband makes no response, whatever to her, from day to day, then he confirms all her vows or all the agreements that bind her. He confirms them because he made no response to her on the day that he heard them. Here, as has been the case several times, it speaks in the plural of kal nedareha and kal esareha, or all vows and all agreements. It is a way of saying that overriding of any vows or the agreeing to any vows comes as individual instances. Any that are annulled are not binding. Any that were not annulled are binding. Everybody got that? The annulling of one vow does not annul any others, and the confirming of one vow does not confirm all. And in all cases of vows, the husband has the authority over the woman to annul, or he cedes his authority to her over whatever matter is concerned when he stays silent or agrees to her vows. Does anybody know what's going on yet? An example of what we have seen in these verses is found in 1 Samuel 1, where Hannah, the wife of Elkanah, made a vow to the Lord to give her child to the Lord for all the days of his life. Elkanah is never seen to have overruled her, and thus the vow is binding. Because of this, we read the following. Hannah did not go and explain to her husband, after the child is weaned, I'll take him to appear in the Lord's presence and to stay there permanently. Her husband Elkanah replied, do what you think is best and stay here until you've weaned him. May the Lord confirm your word. So Hannah stayed there and nursed her son until she weaned him. What happened is she wanted a child. She was barren. She went to the Lord and prayed, if you give me a child, I will give him to you all the days of his life. The husband could have overruled that because she's making a vow. Even though it's to the Lord, he could have overruled it, but it's never seen that he did. And so he said to her, I'm going to take this child down and give him to the Lord all the days. And he said, go and do as you have said. Vow stands forever. The word is sar, meaning to tie or bind, was introduced in verse 2. This is now the 11th and last time it's seen in scripture. 
The heavy stress upon this word shows that such agreements are binding, meaning there are consequences for making them, and it is the authority of the father or the husband to determine what will be done concerning the matter in order to finalize it. Verse 15, an important verse, but if he does make them void after he has heard them, then he shall bear her guilt. This is the verse Sergio commented on. Doesn't this mirror what Christ did? That was his question. And so I saved those words for a year until I got to this passage. And if annulling, he annuls them after he is heard and shall bear her guilt. Well, doesn't that just set the whole passage into its proper place? The husband annuls them after he is heard. He shall bear her guilt. Here the word parar or annul is used again twice. If there is an annulling after the vow is made, the husband bears the guilt. Of this, Cambridge says, if after tacitly consenting at the time that he heard of the vow, he compels her at a later time to break it, then Jehovah will not, as in the foregoing cases, forgive. But the iniquity will rest upon the husband and not upon the woman. The premise is correct, but the analysis is flawed. So is true with the pulpit commentary, which mirrors closely that of Cambridge. You can see where he almost plagiarized Cambridge or vice versa. He says, if he tacitly allowed the vow in the first instance and afterwards forbade its fulfillment, the guilt which such breach of promise involved should rest upon him. Their analysis is further off. It doesn't say forbade its fulfillment. Instead, it says annulled. Further, it isn't a single vow that is spoken of. The words refer to the plural, them. It doesn't say, and if he annuls a vow after he has heard it. And it doesn't say, and if he annuls each agreement after he has heard it. Rather, it speaks of them in the plural. After that, the words say, venasah et avonah, and he shall bear her guilt. She was the one to receive the guilt for not performing the vow. And her performing or not performing the vow isn't even mentioned. She is completely left out of the equation from this point on. Does everybody understand she made a vow and he let it stand? And later he says, oh, I don't want this to stand anymore. He now bears her guilt because he voided a vow that was binding already. That's what's going on. Instead, by hearing the vows of the wife and by later annulling the vows, the husband bears the guilt of the wife. Jim is smiling over there. He has got this. He understands what's going on. Verse 16 finishes with, these are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses between a man and his wife and between a father and his daughter in her youth, in her father's house. The hierarchy is set and it gives the right to the father of the daughter to make the decisions concerning vows and oaths in regard to his daughter. And it gives the right and responsibility to the husband concerning the same There is nothing demeaning in this, and there is every reason to see the marvelous wonder of what God would do in Christ in it. The law is given, and what the law says must be adhered to, including the bearing of guilt by the husband for the annulling of the vows and oaths of the wife. I am your husband, and you are my wife. I have chosen you to always be by my side. 
We are joined together as one in life, and for you, I shall always be your life's guide. When you make a vow that you should not make, or when you make a vow that I find A-OK, the appropriate action I will take, I will make the decision on that very day. And if a vow that you make, I allow to stand. And after that, I see you cannot bear up under it. I will take the consequences that the Lord does demand. I will bear your iniquity so that you, he will acquit. Our second thought today is annulling of the vows. Chapter 30 of Numbers is one of those places in the Bible that modern women certainly hate. To them, the God of the Bible is an ogre who wants to subjugate women, and a male-oriented conspiracy is set in place to perpetuate this concept. The verses here never mention a son, even when it should apply. The rash vows of a little boy are never mentioned. But the vows of a daughter and even a wife, a fully developed woman are. And the vows of a woman that were made binding while she was under her husband's authority continue to be binding even after his death or divorce. Ha! I don't think so, they would say. What the Lord is teaching us here is a lesson first in authority. God is God, and he has established the levels of authority. These are his choices, and it is his sovereign right to define them. He is also teaching us of the necessity of keeping one's vows no matter how absurd they are. If we make a vow to the Lord, nothing here suggests that the vow is not binding. Even if it was a nutty one, although scholars continuously teach this, it is not a precept which is found in Scripture. One of the reasons for the Lord's being adamant in this is because he has spoken vows which are recorded in Scripture. I read one from Psalm 105 earlier. His nature demands that they will be upheld, despite the failing of those he has vowed to. In Daniel 9 verse 11, it says this, Yes, all Israel has transgressed your law and has departed so as not to obey your voice. Therefore, the curse and the oath written in the law of Moses, the servant of God, has been poured out on us because we have sinned against him. The word there translated as oath is one used in this passage, Shavuah. The Lord made a covenant with Israel and Israel agreed to it with their own mouths. Thus, this oath goes two ways. The Lord has made his own promises and guarantees, which include the curses for disobedience to Israel, and Israel agreed to the Lord's word. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the judgments, and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. Those words, kol asher deber Yehovah na'aseh ve'nishma, are properly translated as all which the Lord has said, we will do, and we will hear. They agreed in advance to do what he would say, even before hearing all that he would say. We're still in the law of Moses, and we've got a million more laws to go. We will do, and we will hear. The book of the covenant that was presented to the people in Exodus 24 is not the entire body of the law. It is what the entire body of the law is based on. From that time on, everything which was explained to them was a part of their oath to the Lord. 
the covenant continued to be agreed upon as Moses renewed it in Deuteronomy 29, verse 1. Later, for example, at the time of Joshua, the people again agreed that they would serve the Lord. They made an oath, and Joshua set up a pillar as a witness to them. As he said, Behold, this stone shall be a witness to us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord which he spoke to us. It shall therefore be a witness to you, lest you deny your God. At the time of King Josiah, it says this, Then the king stood by a pillar and made a covenant before the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and all his soul to perform the words of this covenant that were written in the book. And all the people took a stand for the covenant. And again, this was repeated after the exile by the people in Nehemiah 9 and 10 when they called out that they were making a sure covenant with the Lord. These and other such times indicate a wife who made vows to her husband, the Lord. It is a title used of him toward Israel several times, either directly or as an analogy. The Lord was a father to the people until the time was right. Eventually, the people, the congregation of Israel, became a wife in a covenant relationship with the Lord. They vowed. He heard the vows and he allowed them to stand the words were binding on them, and to not fulfill their words brought avon, or iniquity, meaning guilt, upon them. However, the Lord would not allow this to continue forever. Eventually, he stepped into the relationship in a new way. He himself came forward to meet the demands of the law, of these oaths, and to live the life that Israel is convincingly shown to have failed to measure up to. Time and time again. One failed vow after another. The power of the law stood over Israel, and as the author of Hebrews says, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. It is through law that sin is imputed, and it is through sin that the devil has power over the people. But this is where Christ steps in. He is the true high priest. In Israel, when the high priest sacrificed for his sins each year on the Day of Atonement, he would offer a par, or a bull, for his sin. That par is derived from the same word, parar, used seven times today to indicate the annulling of a vow. It is that bull in type of Christ who defeated the devil, making void his power of death. In Christ's assuming the position within the covenant people, he became a part of the bride. Imagine that. He was of the people. They were under the sentence, and they were bound in the prison of the oaths that they had made, and he joined them there. And in living out those oaths, he also annulled them. The same Lord did both. He fulfilled them, and he took the consequence of annulling them. This is why the final verse of the passage says, And if annulling, he annuls them after he is heard, and shall bear her guilt. He annulled all of the oaths, from Exodus through Nehemiah and on, plural, and he assumed their guilt. He could be released from the guilt through performance. However, the body of people, his bride, could not be. 
And so he assumed the penalty that the law said would come upon the husband if the vows she had spoken with her mouth were agreed to. In this, he bore her avon, her iniquity. That is stated explicitly three times in Isaiah 53. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our avon, iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the avon, the iniquity of us all. And it goes down a little further. It says, he shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied by his knowledge. My righteous servant shall justify many for he shall bear their iniquities, their avon. Modern day feminists are angry for absolutely no reason at all. The Lord placed himself under the same supposedly oppressive state that they claim that they are under in the law, and he did it for them. Those Jews who accepted the premise have become a part of his true bride. And for those Gentiles who accept this premise, they too are brought into this amazing new covenant relationship. Some don't understand what God is doing in the world. They claim the term, the bride of Christ, is never mentioned in the Bible. It is, just not with those words. Paul says this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. For I am jealous for you with godly jealousy, for I have betrothed you to one husband, that I may present you as a chaste virgin to Christ. So much for the idiotic doctrine known as hyperdispensationalism. We, Jew and Gentile, are the Lord's betrothed, meaning we stand in exactly the same relationship as the woman who was promised to a husband in verses 6 through 8 of our passage today. We are betrothed to Christ, and thus we are his bride. If you don't know what hyperdispensationalism is, it says that there are two covenants, one to the Jew and one to the Gentile. Christ is doing two different things with two different groups of people. That's proven false all the way through the Old Testament and the New. It's insane. We are being prepared for our presentation to him. And unlike the old covenant relationship, we do not have a humongous and impossible body of laws to observe. Rather, we have one primary responsibility, which is to be joined to the Lord. All other responsibilities after that fall under that which is pleasing to him or that which displeases him. But none fall under the category of incurred guilt. No, the Lord has borne our guilt and freed us from it. Rather, we are his from the moment that we join to him. And so let us be sure that we are, in fact, joined to him. The gospel tells us how to make that happen. It tells us that Jesus Christ came. He was born under this law that we're looking at right now. He's fulfilling the types and pictures of these obscure verses that Joan said a few minutes ago she didn't understand. Now you do, don't you? The Lord isn't talking about authority in a way to demean women. He's talking about what I am going to do when I come into the stream of humanity under this burdensome law. I am going to live it out as a part of the bride. And then I'm going to annul it because I'm the Lord. And therefore, somebody has to take the punishment. The same one that annuls it is the same one that's living under it who fulfilled it. And so he took the punishment for us. This is what is being described to you. Now, obviously, this is speaking about what happened to Israel because we were not under the law of Moses. But it's a picture that God has taken all of the sin and all of the guilt of all of the people of all time on this planet, and he has laid it on his son. 
for us. He loves us that much. When somebody says, well, it's a, it's a sexist book against, they have no idea what they're talking about. Tell them to watch this sermon, to understand what God is doing in Christ. Have them understand that because it is something that everybody needs to know what he is doing so that they can come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and say, I want that. He was willing to do that for me. All the things I've done, I've aborted children and I've killed this person and I've done that and I've, all of it, all of the guilt is on Christ if you're willing to place it there. So I have a verse that I'd like to read you so that you can think about this. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I'm going to take you there. I'm going to read you what it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. It says, Therefore, since we have such hope, we use great boldness of speech, unlike Moses, who put a veil over his face so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the end of what was passing away. But their minds were blinded, for until this day the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament, because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Why did Paul say that? It's because they're reading an incomplete body of law. They're reading the law that they're under and not how to get out of under it. And to this day, they suffer because of it. If they have not come to Christ, they are under condemnation and they are obligated to every single word of every single oath made by their ancestors in this book. King Hezekiah, King Josiah, Nehemiah, Joshua, Moses, all of them, they all agree to it with their mouths, and they are bound to every single one of those. And if they cannot meet that perfectly, they are condemned. And Christ came and took that away from them. And now we have the New Testament to show us this. And until they come and read the New Testament and say, I get it, and I wish that some Jews somewhere would see this sermon and say, I understand now what Christ did. He has taken me out of this body of impossible laws, and he has given me life. The man who does the things of the law shall live by them. It says in Leviticus 18, verse 5, nobody can do it except the one who was born without sin in the first place. And all of you here have the right and the obligation to call on this same wonderful Lord if you will simply do so. I ask Christ to forgive me, cleanse me, and purify me, and you will be saved. That's what he asks of you. After that, there is no law. There is no law because by law is the imputation of sin. And he says in 2 Corinthians 5 verse 19, we are not being imputed sin. Therefore, everything that we do after coming to Christ falls under one of two categories, rewards and loss of rewards. You talk about eternal salvation, there it is right there. The Lord loves you. Please call on Jesus Christ. Our closing verse comes from Ecclesiastes 5, verses 4 and 5. When you make a vow to God, do not delay to pay it, for he has no pleasure in fools. Pay what you have vowed. Better not to vow than to vow and not pay. Next week is Numbers 31, 1 through 11, another of Israel's warring fights. It's entitled, Take Vengeance on the Midianites. That'll be our 59th number sermon. And I'll tell you this, the Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. It may seem at times as if you are lost in a desert, wandering aimlessly, but the Lord is there, carefully leading you to the land of promise. And so follow him and trust him, and he will do marvelous things for you and through you, okay?
Now, I have a question for you. Anybody that can get this, I'll give them a Maserati for the week, okay? <laughs> there are two things going on with Israel. Individual salvation and corporate salvation. How do individual Jews obtain salvation? We all know. Individually calling on Jesus Christ. How does collective Israel obtain salvation? That's exactly right. Can you tell me where that's found? Uh, Revelation. Well, Revelation shows that it happened. I, I'll take you uh, first to Psalm 118, verse 26, okay, where it says this. Psalm 118, verse 26 says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We have blessed you from the house of the Lord. And then in Matthew 23, verse 39, Jesus quotes that. He says these words, Matthew 23, verse 39. I'm going to take you back a little bit first, though. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. Who is in charge of Israel? Jerusalem. It's the capital city. That's where the king dwells. That's where the government resides. He is speaking now to the leaders of Israel. Okay? Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I have wanted to gather your children as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. For I say to you, you shall see me no more till you say, speaking to the leaders of Israel, the corporate salvation Baruch haba b'ashem Adonai. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That is when Israel will be saved, and not until then. Every Jew must make the same decision as all of us, but there is a corporate salvation to the people of Israel, unlike any other nation on earth. And right now, they are bound by this law, and they are going to suffer because of it. It's called the tribulation period. Seven years of hell on earth with Israel at the center of it. Paul speaks about this corporate salvation also in Romans 9 through 11. Go read up today. I got a poem for you. It's called, He Shall Bear Her Guilt. Then Moses spoke to the heads of the tribes concerning the children of Israel, saying, This is the thing which the Lord has commanded. These words to you from him I am now relaying. If a man makes a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by some agreement, maybe to some sort of deeds, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that out of his mouth proceeds. Or if a woman makes a vow to the Lord and binds herself by some agreement by making that agreement sound, uh-huh, while in her father's house in her youth, and her father hears her vow and the agreement by which she has herself bound, and her father holds his peace, then all her vows shall stand, and every agreement with which she has bound herself, so it shall stand. This is what the law does demand. But if her father overrules her on the day that he hears, then none of her vows nor her agreements by which she has bound herself shall stand, and the Lord will release her, because her father overruled her. It's the rule of the land. If indeed she takes a husband while bound by her vows or by a rash utterance from her lips by which she bound herself, and her husband hears it to his ears, the sound drips, and makes no response to her on the day that he hears, then her vows shall stand." And her agreements by which she bound herself shall stand. Such is the rule of the land. But if her husband overrules her on the day that he hears it, he shall make void her vow which she took for sure, and what she uttered with her lips, by which she bound herself, and the Lord will release her. Also, any vow of a widow or a divorced woman, beware of this for sure. 
by which she has bound herself shall stand against her. If she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself with an oath by an agreement, and her husband heard it and made no response to her and did not overrule her after out of her mouth it went, then all her vows shall stand. It is the rule of the land, and every agreement by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband truly made them void on the day he heard them, yes, he voided them for sure, then whatever proceeded from her lips concerning her vows or concerning the agreement binding on her, it shall not stand. Her husband has them void made, and the Lord will release her. The vows have been stayed. Every vow and every binding oath to afflict her soul, which she has employed, her husband may confirm it, or her husband may make it void. Now, if her husband makes no response whatever to her from day to day, then he confirms all her vows or all the agreements that bind her. He confirms them because he made no response to her on that day that he heard them. She is bound to them for sure. But if after he has heard them, he does make them void, then he shall bear her guilt because he has this tactic employed. These are the statutes which the Lord commanded Moses between a man and his spouse and between a father and his daughter in her youth in her father's house. Lord God, we are even now in a wilderness and we are wanting to be led by you. Without you to direct our lives would be a mess. And so be our guide, O God, you who are faithful and true. We long for the water in this barren land. May it flow forth from the rock our souls to satisfy. Give us this refreshing spiritual hand and may we take it into our lives daily. It apply. And we shall be content and satisfied in you alone. We will follow you as we sing our songs of praise. Hallelujah to you, to us, your path you have shown. Hallelujah. We shall sing to you for all of our days. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for the great work which Christ accomplished, first for the Jew and also for the Gentile, the burden that he took upon himself, which you took upon yourself when you stepped out of the infinite realm and united with human flesh in the person of Jesus Christ. How marvelous it is to even think about it and to read this passage today and to understand what Christ did is beyond comprehension. They stood there, they made the vows, and you didn't say a word. You allowed them to go through with it. It's a picture of every single one of us saying, yes, we're going to be obedient to you, Lord. We vow to be good to you. We come to Christ and we say, I'm going to be the best person ever. And then we fail, and we continue to fail, and we continue to fail. And you're not holding those vows against us because Christ already took the iniquity upon himself. Thank you, O God, for releasing Israel and for giving us release as well. Jew and Gentile together in one new covenant, forever able to stand in your presence and to behold your glory and to worship you for all eternity for the great work which Christ our Lord, Jesus, Yeshua, our salvation is done. Thank you for our Lord Jesus. And so it's in his exalted name that we pray. Amen. Amazing, isn't it? I'll tell you something. I read commentary after commentary, as I do for every sermon. And all you got was the mechanics. And like I said, I'd like to say that I would have figured that one out. It, it seems pretty obvious now, but just the fact that Sergio read that and said, doesn't that sound like our relationship and what Christ did for us? A year ago, 
And like I said, I put that aside and I said, well, that sounds interesting, but I hate to commit to things because as soon as you do, you've got it in your head and you're going to say, oh, that's the answer to that. Well, it was as obvious as the nose on my face after about verse five or six. It, it, obvious what the Lord is doing. But I tell you what, thank God for people that are willing to think about Christ when they read something so obscure as that. Belief in Jesus is your path to salvation, the vow to us. Right. Can't be broken. Can't be broken. He's made a vow. It cannot. Eternal salvation is all over this. People that teach the doctrine that you can lose your salvation are not good scholars. I mean, we don't even need this passage to know that. It's as plain as the nose on your face. There's a couple difficult verses which are taken out of context, especially from the book of Hebrews. Okay, they're very difficult verses to analyze. But the reason why is because people are looking at them and they're not saying, oh, that's speaking in the plural. And if you understand he's speaking in the plural in those verses, Hebrews 4, 5, and 6, I think it is, anyway, he's speaking in the plural. He's not speaking about us at all. He's speaking about corporate Israel. What is the book written to? The Hebrews. That's right. It's a corporate body. And when he's speaking about entering into God's rest, he's speaking at times about corporate individuals. And then at times he says, now we who believe individual do enter that rest. Israel hasn't. We have individually. You have to understand what's going on in the plural and singular in the Greek, which most people don't consider it. Oh, you're speaking to everybody, so that means anybody. It's not doing that. There is no doctrine in the Bible that teaches you can lose your salvation. And in fact, it would be a diminishing of what God did in Christ on the cross. And that's what that comes down to. So please know that you are safe if you called on Christ. It doesn't mean Christ's happy with you, though. You understand that? Just because you've called on him doesn't mean that you're making him happy right now. You might be doing something you shouldn't be doing, and, well, he's not pleased with you. But he's never going to forsake you. Not ever. Because of his son, not because of you.